New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Today the subject we'll be exploring is a creative process as expressed in the art of photography. Photography can awaken our potential for expanded consciousness. It can help us become fully present, undivided, and liberated from the constraints of our mundane preoccupations. Photography appeals to many as one of the most important means of communication of the 21st century. Thanks to cell phones and digital technology, it's the great democratic medium. Who would have thought a mere 15 years ago that digital cameras would transform every aspect of picture taking? We are in the early stages of a profound revolution and we can participate in shaping the realities of the new order in which images are made, seen, and shared immediately and globally without curation or censoring by editors or governments. Our guest today, David Ulrich, says, knowing the world through a camera and learning about your own nature are reciprocal elements in the creative dance of photography. All art is about human consciousness, what we choose to pay attention to, and indeed, every photograph is in some measure, a self-portrait. David Ulrich is a college-level professor and co-director of the Pacific New Media Foundation in Honolulu, Hawaii. He teaches frequent classes and workshops and is an active photographer and writer whose work has been published in numerous books and journals. His photographs have been exhibited internationally in more than 75 one-person and group exhibitions. He blogs about creativity and consciousness and is the author of several books, including The Widening Stream, The Seven Stages of Creativity, and Zen Camera, Creative Awakening with a Daily Practice in Photography. Join us for the next hour as we explore photography as a path of self-discovery with our guest, David Ulrich. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. David, welcome. Welcome, and thank you very much for having me, Justine. It's my pleasure. 
David, let's talk about how you got into photography in the first place. Was this an early love of yours, or, or what, what, was the, what was the trigger for you? That's a very interesting story, and I don't know what the trigger was, because at the age of one and a half, my favorite toy was my father's broken camera. <laughs> when I was 11, I received a camera for Christmas— when I was 13, I had my first and only New York exhibition <laughs> as part of the National Scholastic Art Awards. I continued to do photography up until high school. In high school, I was a little bit too involved in swimming and girls <laughs> to do much photography. But when I started college, I got back into it, and I was studying photojournalism at the time. And I understand, I think, that, that you actually, in college, you were actually at Kent State when that terrible, terrible disaster happened, I believe in 1970, was it? Yes, that really shaped my uh, thinking, and it certainly shaped my creative development. I was a student at Kent State studying photojournalism in the spring of 1970, there was a protest against uh, President Nixon taking troops into Cambodia, and it was a very large demonstration. The governor called the National Guard, and the National Guard fired armor-piercing bullets, not rubber bullets, into a crowd, a large crowd of college students, killing four and wounding others. It was a horrific event, and... For me, it, it brought to light the fact that violence is not what's going to help our society. I began to realize at Kent State, or, or rather I intuited, I was very young at the time, I intuited that consciousness had to change in order to change society. Consciousness of individuals multiplied into societies and nations. And I intuited that art had the capacity to help in that process. So I left college after Kent State and went back to school a couple of years later, um, and I got a BFA in art rather than journalism. David, when you came to that realization, I believe it had something to do with the tremendous polarization that was happening at that time, which we're actually repeating right now. It's the same thing right now. And uh, so do you have any comment on that? I do. Uh, the, the polarization that took place in the 60s and 70s revolved around the Vietnam War, and there was violence on both sides, really, pro-war against the war. And I never feel that violence is the answer. I am deeply concerned about what's happening today. I feel that we are becoming a polarized nation and there's no dialogue. And without dialogue, I think the polarization is just going to deepen. I think we need political leaders that will help open us to dialogue rather than um, rely on partisan politics. I'm deeply concerned. Yes. But I do believe the same thing I believed in 1970, that we as individuals need to grow and, and expand our consciousness. And I believe we as societies and nations 
need to become more conscious if anything is going to change in this divided world. David, specifically the art of photography, in, in what I gather from your writings and your, your work, is that photography, even not, I'm not even talking about a professional level, I'm just talking about just participating in that act of taking photographs, can lead us to greater empathy is something that you talk about. And so in, in when we're talking about coming to consciousness, I'd love for you to share with us your view of how photography can create more, more empathy within us. You know, the marvelous thing about photography is that it requires a dual awareness. We have to be aware of the external world. We have to be aware of our subject. At the same time, we need to be aware of ourselves because our responses to the world takes place in here, takes place in our mind and our heart and our body. So the more we become attentive to what's outside of us, the more we're becoming aware of our own reactions and responses. I think when it comes to people, it naturally engenders greater empathy. I think the camera is a marvelous way to engender an in-depth interaction with another human being. If I walked around the world staring, if I looked at you like this intently, mm -hmm. you might think I was a creep or a pervert. <laughs> yeah. might, I might back off, right? If I didn't know you, I would probably. Right. But when a, with a camera in your hand, you have an excuse to look and you have an excuse to look deeply. I had a marvelous experience with a master photographer by the name of Paul Strand. I was very young, and I met him when he was at the end of his working life. And what struck me was the way he looked at me. I felt as if he was completely taking me in. I felt as if he was looking right into me, but it was not the least bit uncomfortable. And as I questioned why his gaze felt so powerful, what I felt from him was a sense of impersonal love. Mm. You know, his gaze opened to other people with what I would call universal love. And it was a powerful, nourishing experience. And in that moment, I recognized that the way in which a photographer works with a subject can be deeply nourishing. Or, you know, in art school, we talk about the male gaze it can also be exploitive. So the question is the photographer's intent. Can it be a nourishing act for both the subject and the photographer, or is it in any way exploitive? You know, that reminds me, that story of Paul Strand, it reminds me of the movie Harold and Maude. And there's a, a certain scene where Harold, this young boy, is sitting by the... Uh, Bay, San Francisco Bay, with Maude, who's in her 80s or going to soon be 80. And he notices that she has a tattoo of um, uh, Nazi Germany, that she was in some sort of um, concentration camp. And he said, Maude, how, how is it that you can just love people like you do in all that you've been through? 
And the line that she says there is so powerful to me. She said, why, Harold, they are my species. <laughs> That's so very good. Yes. And it, it's, it's, yes. it reminds me of what Paul is, Strand was doing is like that universal love because we're all of the same species, the human species. We are all of the same species. You know, when I was growing up, we had a, a, a phrase we would call it racial characteristics, but we were talking about the characteristics of the human race. <laughs> uh, yes. And I felt that from Paul Strand. Much of his work were portraits of people in different parts of the world. And before I met Paul Strand, I had questioned, how could he photograph strangers so intimately? And then I realized it all was because of the way he was. So I think as a photographer, we have a responsibility. The way we approach the world can move in different directions. And can we approach the world with respect, with attention, even with love, rather than approaching it with greed and the exploitation that some photographers engage in in order to get a good picture. And even uh, adding another word to that, uh, curiosity. Curiosity, inquiry, openness. Yes, yes absolutely. Yes. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with David Ulrich, and he is a photographer, a professor, and workshop leader, and author of Zen Camera, Creative Awakening with a Daily Practice in Photography. And if you want to know more about the work of David, you can go to his website, creativeguide.com. Or you can he does a blog as well, and that's a different website. It's theslenderthread.org. And I want to spell his name for you. It's David Ulrich, spelled U-L-R-I-C-H. And you can get to his websites through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with David Ulrich, and he is the author of Zen Camera, Creative Awakening with a Daily Practice in Photography. And David, I'd love to get to some of your ideas of how we all can really participate in this art form or this way of being. It's just marvelous, marvelous. You're not opposed to the, the cell phone camera, are you? You know, some people are purists and say, oh, no, you can't use that. But what do you have to say about 
us going around and, and using our cell phones. I'm going to step back for just a moment and remind everyone that the statistics are something like 1.3 trillion photographs were taken in 2017. <laughs> and a larger number are expected in 2018. 75% of those are taken with a cell phone. So from the point of view of a photographer, it's very interesting. On the one hand, there's an unselfconscious charm of photographs taken by uh, amateurs, so to speak, with a cell phone camera. On the other hand, a designer friend of mine has commented, it contributes to a state of visual pollution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so that's the two sides, a paradox. Yeah, there's the paradox. And, and how do we stand within this? I wrote Zen Camera to provide a teaching in photography for that 75% of people that are using cell phones. And I believe that photography is an invitation. When you pick a camera up, even a cell phone, it's an invitation to observe the world. It's an invitation to look inward and to take note of your own responses to the world. We would have to agree there's two different worlds, the outer and the inner world. When those two worlds converge, an image is made, and I believe that we learn many things in school, but we are never taught how to see. I think that's very regretful. I believe also that the day will come, because we're such a visual culture, that there should be uh, classes in photography for everyone, because most people are now using photography as a means of communication. That's such a great point. Like, we do, we have to take English, we have to take math, we have to take a language. So a required course, photography, what an idea, what a concept. Or you could even just say visual communication. Laszlo Moholy-Nagy, who was the head of the Bauhaus in 1936, said, the illiterate of the future will be ignorant of the pen and camera alike. Mm. So I think it's, it behooves everyone to know more about visual communication. I think it's beautiful that people take pictures directly out of their lives. But I guess as a photographer, I would like to see people learn more about the visual language. And really deepen it. And deepen it. And you, you, have, you have some suggestions um, as, as tools to help. And one of those is keeping a daily record. So you're saying, hey, what, what does that mean? You tell me. You know, in the artist way, Julia Margaret Cameron uh, has people write their morning pages. Betty Edwards has people draw with their non-dominant hand. Natalie Goldberg, the writer, has people do free writing. Do not edit, do not judge, just keep your hand moving, Natalie says. I think it's the same with photography. We all need a way to access what I would call the wild mind. 85 or 90% of our mind is unconscious. And one of the ways we can access that is by photographing freely and daily. Do not edit, do not judge, photograph anything that strikes your fancy, anything that you feel strongly about. Even outrage is a powerful impulse to make photographs from. Over time, that activity will generate lucid gems, 
photographs that you can really call your own, that are infused with your own being and say something meaningful about the outer world. I, I was just uh, looking for a note that I had written down from your book, and it was a quote from, uh, from a poem from Mary Oliver. And she said, this is the first wildest and wisest thing I know, that the soul exists and that it is built entirely out of attentiveness. And that's what you're talking about, about doing this kind of activity. It's like it's a, a kind of paying attention. It's paying attention. When we give attention to something, it shines with significance. Look at Cezanne painting apples. You know, by giving attention to the apple, he was able to express its livingness. Look at Picasso looking at five prostitutes. You know, the Demoiselles d'Avignon painting. Anytime an artist interacts with the world through attention, there's an energy interaction that gets transferred to the work of art. I believe attention is the great currency of photography. So it's something that we need to train ourselves to do. We're, we're so distracted in our culture. We get, we, we're just flitting from here to there, and, or we're living in this little silo of our own habitual thinking and, and even habitual seeing. We're only- Very habitual seeing. You know, one of the goals in writing this book was to try to help people learn how to interact with technology in a creative manner. If you think about it, the paintbrush is an extension of the hand and the eye. The potter's wheel is an extension of the centered presence of the human body. When I started working on computers, I found a strange satisfaction. And I recognized in a moment that the computer is an extension of the human nervous system. So the camera in our hand is an extension of our brain, basically. When we pick up the camera, my recommendation is to really think about this as a tool to become more present, to become more attentive in the moment. Attention is both a property and a capacity. I'm not sure if I'm saying that quite the right way. Attention is both a tool and a property. In other words, it's something we can, we can uh, sharpen. And the more we pay focused attention, the more we will open to attention as a property, which is an expanse of awareness, awareness that includes the world and myself. But we somehow need to go through that focused attention in order to come to this larger, softer, second attention. So, David, what, what I know that you suggest that we do is that we take at least, I don't know, 100, 200 photos a week. I mean, we Correct. just, we just, and you suggest that we, we just go for what is attracting our eye, whether we're, we're repulsed by it with a little outrage or whether we're just loving it, whatever it is. And then you have us go through at the end of the week, go through all these photos. And it's going to tell us something about ourselves, isn't it? Yes. The key is to learn to take pictures from deeper parts of yourself. And you kind of need to take a lot of pictures in order to come to those moments where something inside of you says yes. 
Mm. Yes, in the sense that I know this is my picture to take. I know that this picture says something that I'm trying to say, even if I don't know what it is. The process of editing, when you look at your pictures, what you're looking for, this is going to sound a little strange. Let me back up for a moment. When I go into a used bookstore, I always know in a moment if I'm going to make a find. And I walk around the bookstore and I look at a shelf and it's, this is going to sound very new agey. A shelf seems to glow in a particular way. It has a sense of presence. And I walk over to that shelf and I find something I'm looking for. So I actually believe that attention can has a capacity to see in a way that our minds cannot fathom. So are you saying that like attention has a, I'm thinking of it like it has a glue, so to speak, or a magnetic pull of some, some invisible, because we're training our attention, we're strengthening that magnetic it's pull. It's very mysterious, and I can't say I know how it happens, but we are drawn. What does Rumi say? Let yourself be silently drawn to the things you really love. So there is a magnetic pull. There's a draw to things that belong to us, so to speak. So I recommend the same thing when you're editing. When you're looking at your pictures that you've taken over the course of a week, you're looking for those pictures that have a coherence, that shine with a certain kind of significance, that jump off the page in a way. And if you collect those pictures, maybe there's three or four a week, and you put them into a separate folder, over time, you begin to find out something about your own vision. I believe that we've come to adulthood without knowing about our own vision. Interesting. And I know as a professor and as someone who teaches young people, students and older people, how your, your students, that after you've been with them a couple of sessions and they turn in their photos, without even knowing the names on the photos, you can pick out whose photos they are. How, do, how does that happen? What, what happens it there? It takes me six or eight weeks to remember everyone's name in the classroom. Usually by the second or third class, however, I can tell whose pictures are whose. Everybody has a different way of handling form, color, light, tonality, line, shape. They also have a different emotional resonance in their work. They also have different kinds of intellectual meaning that they grapple with. All of these things put together represent what a photographer would call their vision, what a writer might call their voice. It's there. It's in each of us. It does not need to be created. It merely needs to be uncovered. So you almost know someone's purpose and vision before it's apparent to themselves. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I, I think with college students, that's true. With adults, one would hope that they have a little more self-awareness. But yes, I think it's easier for a teacher to see it than it is for oneself to see it. And it takes time for it to be uncovered. Yes, yes, I can see that. So uh, what do you have to say about, the, you mentioned just 
very briefly, let's talk about some of these, the frame, the moment, the light. Let's talk about the frame. Uh, I thought that it was interesting. You, you talk, Tell us about how we f- can frame a photo well, and why I'm, it's important. I'm going to step back for just a minute and say one of the teachings of photography that's in the book is looking at the five different visual elements that we need to think about every time we take a picture. The frame, the light, the moment, the treatment of the subject, and how we use color and tonality. Those five questions have to be answered every time we take a photograph. The frame itself is interesting. Let's, before we go into the frame, we're going to be right back. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with David Ulrich, and he is the author of Zen Camera, Creating Creative Awakening with a Daily Practice in Photography. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with David Ulrich, and he is the author of Zen Camera, Creative Awakening with a Daily Practice in Photography. And we're talking about one of the techniques, and that's um, the frame. So you were about to tell us how to frame something or why it's important. One of the things I have observed is that beginning photographers have a disease, and I'm going to call that disease centeritis, <laughs> where they simply put everything in the center of the frame and call it a day. Most photographers think of the frame as part of the composition and think of the edges of the frame as a way of generating dynamic tension within an image. So if you're with another person and you put your hand up, let's say, two feet away from someone else's hand, you feel nothing. If you put your hand up, let's say, six inches from someone's hand, you're going to feel heat and warmth. It's the same with the frame. When we put things close to the edge of the frame, there's a dynamic tension that results. The frame can either contain a moment or it can imply what is happening outside the frame. So there can be energy within the frame or there can be energy that moves you out of the frame towards a suggestion of what else is happening. So the frame is a very intentional way of creating harmony or tension within an image. So if you're going to take a photo, you might use your, what, hand and sort of, how, well, how can we know what, what the frame is going to be? You can actually... Uh, have the camera open and be looking through the viewfinder and studying the relationships that take place. Or sometimes I do cup my hand around my eye just to get a sense of what the frame might look like. Right. Or you can freely experiment because you don't know all the possibilities of the frame. One of the tools I offer students is the exercise to shoot from the hip. Take pictures intuitively 
without looking through the viewfinder. You would be surprised that the chance juxtapositions in the frame will teach you a good deal about the possibilities of framing. So you're just click, click, clicking from, from your hip and you're not looking at, you're oh. not looking through the camera itself. Or but the you're view. doing it intuitively. You have a you know. sense of what is being taken in by the frame. Right. So you're not as haphazard as it might sound. Okay. Like when I look at you now, what interests me is the way your hair comes down over your face and you have a scarf that increases that verticality. And then above you is a vertical guitar hanging on a red wall. So if I were to frame you, I would want to have a sense of the verticality of your scarf moving up your torso and your hair moving up to the guitar and the guitar moving up the wall. So in a way, what we're looking at is oh, a, David, take a the rhythm. picture and let's see it. Let's see it. Can, a can rhythm you do in it? I think I can, I, yes. I, yeah, that would just be interesting to actually see it. Well, I can't really quite get close enough with this camera, but you can get an idea of what I'm talking about here. Okay, thanks. So we'll see about that later. So you can see the, the verticality from your scarf. Oh, I do see it. Up through your hair, up through the guitar. Absolutely, absolutely. There it is. Thank you. Please and send that to me, and we'll put that uh, somehow. I'll do a little little blog <laughs> with that and, and, and for this part of the program. That's great. Thank okay, you. will do. Thank you. So besides framing, um, there's um, light. Um, I know one of the things that you suggest, which just fascinated me, was to take an image, whatever it might be, it might be an object or whatever it is, and you take it many, many times at different times of day, maybe even different seasons from different angles. So talk about the benefit of that. Everybody likes to photograph when they're traveling, but you're almost never in the right place at the right time in terms of the light when you're traveling. One of the things that you will find in working with the camera is certain subjects need a certain kind of light. Some things want cloudy, diffuse light where you can see the volume and substance of the object. Other things look good in sunlight. You never quite know what light is going to be best for, you, for a scene until you experiment. There was a place on Maui, the island Maui, that I knew I wanted to make a photograph of. I went back there a dozen times, different times of day, different kinds of light. Finally, one day I had an intuition, I need to be here at dawn. And my last trip there, I arrived pre-dawn, and the dawn light was perfect light for that particular scene. So the light is what makes or break a photograph, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking um, you made a statement in your, talking about Hawaii, uh, in your book, about how frustrated you were in in that series, I think it's called Hawaii Five O, something like that. <sighs> And you get so frustrated because they get the light all wrong. It's not what Hawaii is, looks like at all. So, so say something about that. This is an issue in the visual arts in general. What Hawaii Five-0, the television show, does is they oversaturate the color. So it looks far more saturated than you actually see it. So it's very, very bright, huh? And yeah. photographers do the same thing. They take the saturation slider in their image editing program 
and they turn it forward. What people are looking for are what is called high-impact imagery. People want to make an image that pops. And I would argue that that is spectacle. And spectacle is something that our culture seems to be good at. Look at the pageantry of football games, of, of boxing matches. Look at the spectacle that some of the political leaders put on today. I think spectacle is different than presence. Mm. What I would argue is that we are looking in an artwork for a sense of livingness, a sense of presence. And I think beginning photographers don't know how to achieve that. So they, they make the image over-contrasty and over-saturated rather than being able to find a quality of living presence in their photographs. So this is kind of what uh, Annie Leibovitz can do. She she gives a kind of presence. Is that what you say? Or- I think Annie Leibovitz has a, has a gift for creating an environment, facilitating an environment where the subject is doing something in a way that seems to really bring them to life. Mm-hmm. You know, remember that iconic photograph of John Lennon and, and Yoko Ono where John was curled up on yes. the floor. That was beautiful. And many other times, uh, Annie Leibovitz takes photographs of people where they're doing something but whatever it is they're doing is indigenous to who they are. Right. And that helps bring about it's that sense of presence. It's not extraneous. It's not extraneous. It's not for effect. Yes. Yes. And so um, what advice would you give us if we wanted to take a portrait of someone? What's, what's your advice of how we might go about that? It really comes back to attention. In order to recognize presence in a person, we need to know presence in ourselves. I had an interesting experience about two weeks ago. A book designer called me up and said, David, what are you doing tomorrow morning? And I said, well, I'm not sure what I'm doing tomorrow morning. And she said, would you like to photograph Obama? And I did. I I can't go into the circumstances. But I took some photographs of Obama, and I was struck at his quality of presence, his livingness. He felt very alive and very present and very gracious. And I think that that's often what we look for in art or imagery is that sense of presence that comes from being able to capture the particular livingness of a subject. Speaking of Obama, it reminds me of my favorite, most favorite photograph of him. He's in the portico between, you know, that kind of covered outdoor space. And Bo, the dog, is with him, on next to him. And they're both running down the portico. And both of them are actually off the ground. It's between <laughs> strides. So, That's so great. Obama is in the air between strides. And so is Bo, is sort of leaping next to him. It's a photograph. Uh, I'm just. It's just imprinted on me, and that's what photographs can do. They can capture, like as you were saying, your own photograph of Obama and his presence and your presence. There it is. I think there's certain impressions that we take in. Can be art. Can be music. Can be another person. 
that touch us deeply. So the question becomes, is it the thing itself that is touching us deeply? Or is it in that moment we're more open? Mm -hmm. I think it can be a combination. There's certain works of art or images that touch me deeply that I look at, and 20 years later, I'm still getting something from it. And at the same time, there are times when I know that I'm closed, when I'm frantic or anxious, I'm not seeing, I'm not present to any impression I may take in. So the question is, how do we prepare ourselves to take in those impressions of the world, of things, of people that could be deeply nourishing to us? Right. You know, there's another uh, couple of photographs that were passed around the internet that and that really touched me. And there, there were both, um, there were photographs. One, the first one is a photograph of President Trump. And he's getting off of Air Force One and it's raining. And he has an umbrella over his head. And he's halfway down the staircase. And he's followed by his son, Baron. And Baron is without any covering. He has nothing. He's just out in the rain. And then that photograph is put next to another photograph that shows a man and a young boy together. You just see the back of them. And they are also in the rain walking. And he has an umbrella. And this man has his arm around this young boy. And he's holding the umbrella over his head. And just those two photographs together just breaks your heart open and says something without words. And this is what what photography can do. It can go right to that heart with beyond our intellect. Picasso said something one time. He said, art is a lie that tells the truth. So we don't know what the context of those moments are really. Right. But basically the way the photographer has captured them speaks volumes. So we can do that ourselves in, in what we what we choose to represent and present. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with David Ulrich, and he is the author of Zen Camera, Creative Awakening with a Daily Practice in Photography. And if you want to know about his work, you can go to his website, creativeguide.com, or his blog site, theslenderthread.org, or you can get to either one of those through our website, newdimensions.org. And David spells his last name U-L-R-I-C-H. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
Hi, I'm here with David Ulrich, and he is the author of Zen Camera Creative Awakening with a Daily Practice in Photography. And David, let's talk about the, the title of your book, Zen Camera. Okay, are, are you a Zen practitioner? I'm a student of Zen. My teacher, Minor White, brought many Zen exercises into the classroom. I feel it's a very apropos language because I think there's a good deal of relationship between Zen practice and the creative process. I'm not part of a Zen lineage, but I do study Zen and practice it to some some degree. I'm thinking many people who have been on the program, many guests before you, who talk about the creative process, they will say that meditation is a big part of the creative process. And I think that you agree with that. And I'd love for you to say something about that. I totally agree with that. My first photography class in college, we walked into the room very noisily. And the teacher was sitting in the front of the room in a lotus position. As we entered the room, he opened his eyes and he said, it is my belief that creativity arises from stillness. I believe that a quiet mind, I believe that a centered body open us to the deeper aspects of our being human. I think Zen sitting is a very powerful tool for self-transformation. I think the creative process and photography can really assist in that process. Photography asks us for a dual awareness. We have to be aware, situational awareness of the world, and we have to be aware of ourselves and our own thoughts and our own reactions to the thing in front of us. There is a kind of a mindfulness that is necessary with photography. We see how we see. We witness our thoughts, our reactions, our feelings toward what we're looking at. And a relationship is established. Yes. And so that's the difference when we see someone taking a photograph without that awareness and then we see a photograph where someone where that presence somehow exists in some mysterious way it's just radiated in some ways in zen and in art we aim for present moment awareness being present in the moment And I have a belief that if two photographers were standing side by side in the same tripod hole, so to speak, and one person was giving attention to the subject and the other person was not, that we would see the difference. I think there's an energetic currency that takes place through attention. I think once we begin to sit and quiet the mind, we come to the deeper elements of being human which we find and observe in ourselves, but we also find and observe in, in people around us. So you talk about attention. You give it a, some space in your book, so to speak. And, and as you said earlier in the program, you said attention is uh, photography's great currency. And it's a capacity that we can strengthen. We can actually build uh, like a muscle we can we can build on it and we we're not good at that uh, normally because we get so distracted you know attention is a muscle it can be strengthened and we are 
tripart creatures. We have a mind, we have a body, we have feelings. Through the process of sitting, through an inward engage, engagement of moving attention inside one's own body, it has a unifying effect. It can help bring the mind, the body, and the feelings together. Any strong work of art has a component that speaks to the feelings and to the body as well as the mind. If a work were only conceptual, it would be dry and analytical. So we need to involve the body and the feelings. And how do we do that? I think one of the tried and true methods of engaging the wholeness of a human being is through sitting in the morning or sitting during the day, but also this sense of an active attention, a mindful attention that we bring inward and outward simultaneously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know one of the activities that, that surprised me and fascinated me in the book is that this has to do with photography, but it's a different activity. It's an activity of drawing that you actually have suggests that we we draw something but not look at the hand that's drawing. We draw it intuitively like we're looking at something or even looking at someone and we draw their face without looking down at the paper. And what's the purpose of that? Do you remember Walt Whitman's poem, I don't know the name of it, about the 28 young bathers at the shore? He talks about, I ran my hand tremblingly over the water droplets on their body. There is the possibility of an active empathy. As I look at you now and I see your, the vertical scarf and the hair, there's an inward movement that I feel I want to trace with my hand. This sense of active empathy can be a way of entering into the things that are outside of us. And it's a relationship between our own attention and whatever we're perceiving. So I think that this kind of empathy, this kind of active empathy can link us to the subject in a, in a very um, humanistic manner. You have us also to take an object and to enter into that object, not through our imagination, but to be part, like let's say we're sitting in front of a tree and you, you have us do an exercise of becoming that Become tree. the tree, yes. And what, what do you mean by that? This is very, this has to be approached with care. What does it mean to stand in someone's shoes? That's the classic example of empathy. So you watch somebody walk down the street. Let's say they have very baggy jeans. Let's say the jeans are sort of falling down a little bit. What does it feel like to be in those legs? What does it feel like to be wearing those jeans? What does it feel like to wear a particular cap that someone is wearing? You can know the experience of another through your own body and your own feelings. So this is like putting your judgments aside, your preconceptions aside. It's like... Has nothing to do with what we think about somebody or, or how we judge them. It simply has to do with the very physical facts of their existence. You know, the posture, the way they're sitting the way one's hand is sort of resting on the face, you can, you can feel that in your own body. You know, I remember um, I used to go to a wonderful uh, body worker, an osteopathic doctor, and he was a healer. 
And when I walked in the office, he said, oh, I know exactly what's going on with you. He could tell from my walk. And he, he I was so surprised at how he could just see, see so much more than I could. And so since that time, it's been like several decades since that time, I have started to train myself to see how different people walk and to start to know where someone is feeling pain and where their pain is. I, I never thought I could do that before, but it's a matter of kind of expanding our awareness in some way. It's really expanding our awareness and staying open to the wisdom of the body, the wisdom of the feelings, in addition to the knowing of the mind. One of the things that is a very useful exercise is to look at your own photographs. What do your photographs say about you? A trained and perceptive observer can tell quite a bit because anytime you take a photograph, whether it's of something out there or even of yourself, you are always doing a self-portrait in some way or another. And I think if you really look at your work as a self-portrait, it far exceeds what we would call a shallow selfie where you're simply photographing how you look externally. Oh, that's beautiful. So it's going to really tell us a lot about ourselves. And this is the whole point that, I mean, we don't need to aspire to be a professional photographer, but we can learn more, discover more about ourselves through this process. It can be a journey of self-discovery. We all have our angels. We all have our demons. We all have our strengths. We all have our weaknesses. These things can be revealed. These things will be shown in relief as we engage any art form, including photography. Is there any parting advice that you would give us to keep up the good work of taking these photographs and maybe adding this to our repertoire of how we can function with more creativity in our lives? I think that the more we engage the creative process, whether it's by taking pictures or playing music or writing a journal, ideas beget ideas, creativity begets creativity. I was an athlete when I was in high school. I was a competitive swimmer. I could not imagine swimming the race without warming up first. If you take pictures on a regular basis, you synchronize and you enter what we call the flow. It's, it's a heightened state. It's what we aim for in sitting some of the time is this kind of um, enhanced awareness, but we can also enter it through the creative arts. David, I wanna thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. I always enjoy talking about creativity and photography. So thank you, Justine. This was a wonderful experience. Thank you. I've been here with David Ulrich, and he is the author of Zen Camera, Creative Awakening with a Daily Practice in Photography. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, creativeguide.com, or his blog, theslenderthread.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And he spells his last name U-L-R-I-C-H, David Ulrich. And I want to thank you all for joining us. This is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3646.
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.